the very rules of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is the whole state of things, true of violence without force This is the typical violence of Violence because what happens there is a murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. Welcome to Machine Gun Conscious Happier with Cooper Cherry and Taylor Atkins, as always, sponsored by the People's Institute for Revolutionary Semiotics. Before we introduce our guest this week, we want to mention we've got a Patreon account at patreon.com forward slash M-U-H-H. Consider throwing us a dollar a month there. But if not, perhaps leave us a nice review on iTunes instead. Either way, we appreciate your support and listenership. We're very excited to bring you a returning guest, great friend of ours, Mr. Leon Brenner. Leon is a psychoanalyst and psychoanalytic theorist from Berlin. His work focuses on the integration of philosophical and linguistic frameworks in psychoanalytic theory of subjectivity and the understanding of the relationship between culture and psychopathology. He is a training analyst, member of the APPI, and a founder of Lacanian Affinities Berlin and Unconscious Berlin. His latest book, which we covered previously on the show on the subject of the psychoanalysis of autism, is called The Autistic Subject on the Threshold of Language, where he presents a novel account of autistic subjectivity from a Lacanian perspective. But Leon, thank you so much for joining us. Again, it's, it's criminal that we haven't had you back sooner. It is almost, almost criminal. But uh, <laughs> we're going to remedy that today. And I mentioned while you're, Coop, I just mentioned we would, we would let Leon sell the audience, some of whom are new. Leon, tell us a little bit about your origin story, as I, as I mentioned. Started as an aspiring psychologist. Uh, was, uh, it's, it's going to be very quick. Was That's quite uh, disappointed with the, um, let's say, the, the depth of thought that I've encountered in the in the department, then let's say subverted into uh, a more theoretical training and worked on philosophy of psychology. And uh, at the time was very much into phenomenology, particularly Merleau-Ponty was a very, quite a influential figure in my work. And then accidentally I stumbled upon Lacan and Badiou you know how they say in love stories, then uh, lived happily ever after or like in, in complete misery. <laughs> so after that, um, I've also um, took upon myself to do my training as an analyst. And I'm, I'm doing that today, you know, in the Lacanian orientation, the formation of the analyst is infinite. It never ends. Every analyst is, is constantly in formation. That's quite a, an interesting ethical perspective, I think, to take on the practice. On the practice, And I think it makes sense, doesn't it? Because uh, there's so many changes in the world and changes in subjects, and it's important to account for exactly that thing that you do in a place that is completely secretive. Nobody knows what, what's going on there. It is interesting to think that any particular experience or any particular, as we just saw, like parapraxis, you use that as material to, to sharpen your theoretical edge, so to speak, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So sometimes you, I suppose you also have to turn it off and, and maybe just 
let things be or let yourself be. Otherwise, you might get, get overwhelmed. You have to choose your battles, I suppose. In Freud's paper, Negation, he mentions how, um, and this is how I read it, but how, how uh, a certain type of interpretation can, in fact, become a party trick. You know, the, the one with, oh, it's not my mother. So yeah, sometimes your practice uh, slips into uh, into other domains, but only for entertainment, I guess. Right, right. I can imagine. Uh, I can imagine your that would be probably the last thing you you would want at a party is is just to to show it off as though it's a magic trick or something. You know, someone someone give me a tick, give me a <laughs> uh, produce a symptom. Right, uh, like charades. Oh, you do. You're the neurotic. You be the neurotic. Yeah. yeah. Draw, <laughs> draw a a symptom out of a jar. I remember, I think that you mentioned part of this too, your, your falling in, into Lacanian theory and, and this, it did seem like, if I recall, it was somewhat, somewhat of a lucky occurrence or maybe unlucky, but it was, it was <laughs> more or less, what, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, like a chance, a sort of. Yeah, maybe a chance encounter or uh, serendipity, maybe it was. You said you kind of like took a, a Lacan class that maybe no one was really enrolled in, but somehow you stuck with it and it just it snowballed into sort of what you're what you're doing today. Yes, you have a very good memory, Tyler. <laughs> That's exactly the story. Yeah. But I mean, isn't um, isn't any life story like that? You know, it's um, yeah. we neurotically plan for a future that is promised, but uh, this is not how life goes. Right? I'm glad to to have you back and I appreciate the materials you've shared with us today. I know you've been doing so much since we last spoke. We definitely, as Cooper mentioned, you know, we we're taking as as a basis or a, or a nice foothold your last published book, but some of the stuff that you've done, obviously new work also feels like it expands upon that and gives some various frameworks to it cuz sort of do you feel that the work you're doing now is just an extension or are there are there these new or do you feel like you're on a new path or is it is it sort of both and neither i don't know i'm, I'm trying to get your your sense of where you see your your theoretical discoveries and trajectory going you know it's something that i tell many of my students all the time about writing is that it is much more difficult to cut down what you've originally wrote than to write more Pay attention to that. It's eventually, it is about trimming the argument. So it will mm -hmm. be clear, precise, comprehensive. And working on the book on autism, the autistic subject, this, this book, there have been so many things I wanted to add. They just became these uh, paragraphs that when I was editing the book, I decided to take them out, cut them off, you know, so many tangents that I, I went on. And they went in, into this list of potential further work. I have to say that the book itself was such an extensive project. It, it took me, I think, about four years to, mm -hmm. to complete it. I'm happy with the result and I'm, I'm happy hearing from people that read it and are impacted by it in, in some way. But I have to say that following the book, this is actually the time in my work where I was actually reaping what I saw. And all these papers that I've been publishing in the late last few years, they have been exactly a product of, of the trimming of, of, the, of the major project of the book. They're like the, the transplants, right? You, you've, you've trimmed your bonsai tree, but now you can like plant those and they can flourish as well. I do remember 
one of the things that, that I remember when we last discussed, you had some of those trajectories too were planted in, in the footnotes because you had a lot of, perhaps that was, that was some things too, where there was, they could themselves have been whole chapters or books and you kind of showed some of the trajectories you were interested in. And I, I am curious, for example, like in one of the papers you shared today that you're prospectively working on uh, formulating the dermic drive. Was mm -hmm. this already something, one of those theoretical offshoots, or do you feel like it's, it's born fruit sort of only after the fact? This is a really good question, Tyler. And it actually forces me to go back and think uh, how I started this. And when thinking about it, this project, the project on the skin, the dermic drive, mm -hmm. and it's an ongoing project. It was initiated in my interest in what I was investigating in terms of autistic spatiality or right or let's say perception of space or let's say positioning within the world the environment what is called the umwelt i was very much interested in that and that brought me to think about space about distance about boundaries and eventually brought me to read quite a lot about these notions in the history of psychoanalysis and develop something out of it it is is very interesting. I know that even, you know, when we had you on, you had already written something on Lacan's mirror stage, which is sometimes, for example, you know, as Cooper and I have both have a kind of a background in, in English literature, where a lot of times we're forced to take a, a critical theory class, a literary theory class. And sometimes for some of us, uh, the most we get is is that that essay from Lacan, you know, in the Acree on the mirror stage. And then if mm. we're brave, we we continue that. But a lot of people are like, whoa, that's that's probably enough. But I know that you were writing on you had written on the, the mirror stage at that point. And I was struck kind of looking back at that essay on the mirror stage that some of the stuff that he refers to there sort of got my gears spinning and thinking about your work in ways because he is too he even mentions this sort of relation between the innenwelt and the umwelt right mm -hmm. this mm -hmm. sort of von school language that that got me thinking too about some of your investigations i guess that would be one of my questions too because you were writing about this at the time and obviously you you are prolific there, there's a lot of great work out there if people want to go look at leon's work you know the like your essay on the and guattari the body of the organs and autism right you've mm -hmm. you've got these things that, that get me excited so i i guess that, that would be a question where let's come back to the lacan i i I'm just anticipating because i know we want to start to get into some of this work uh one of the essays you shared an analyst I'd never heard of, Esther Brick, that was very helpful in maybe situating. So I suppose we can step back before we step forward and show that this supposedly doesn't, doesn't necessarily come out of nowhere, right? That you, there is this lineage looking at the skin, even with even back to, to Freud, the ego and the id. So yeah, let's let's maybe just to take the, the reader along with our flight, because I remember last time we we sort of dove into the deep end. Maybe we can start in the in the shallow end first and, and make our way. Let's do it. <laughs> skin skin deep. Right. The skin <laughs> deep end. Exactly. We're gonna talk about the skin and particularly about this way to look at it, this notion that I developed that's called the dermic drive. And as you said, the skin has been uh, an issue of debated among psychoanalysts in the history of psychoanalysis. And we have many analysts writing about it. I think when people are reminded of the skin in psychoanalysis, they 
many times think about Didier Antieux, which, well, he wrote the book, The Skin Ego. And I think Antieux, his work is a culmination of work that preceded him, where the skin has been theorized in terms of its function in the formation of the ego. And that's no surprise to us, because we know that there's some sort of an obsession with egos in psychoanalysis since mm-hmm. the mid-20th century. And I think that w- when we read these works, we're not so surprised that the skin would be associated with that. You've mentioned Freud, and that's true. Freud speaks about the skin and its function in the development and in the initiation of the psyche, let's say, in Beyond the Pleasure Principle, in the ego and the id, he he really is very explicit. And he says that the ego is first and foremost a bodily ego. So he says the ego is derived from bodily sensations springing from the surface of the body. So Freud was already there. He uh, He was already thinking about that, as we see many times when we read new developments in psychoanalysis. So there's a lot to say about that, and we can get into it. So you'll have to lead on that. But I'll just say that what distinguishes my project on the skin from, let's say, these projects that I definitely rely on, derive my thinking from, is the fact that I'm thinking of the, the skin in terms of drive theory. Mm-hmm. These psychoanalysts were theorizing the skin in terms of ego construction theory. So for me, the skin is something that is, well, we might say, more primordial or something that is not, cannot be reduced to the level, let's say, this secondary level of, um, let's say, secondary psychic consistency that we associated with the ego and Freud associated with the ego. For me, the skin is something that is more rudimentary, more initial in the formation of the ego. And this is why I associate it with the working of the drive rather than with the construction of the ego. What I immediately go to is that opening, you know, very descriptive opening of libidinal economy where Viettar talks about kind of flattening out the body and all the organs, etc. So that I think that sort of makes a lot of sense there. But I think your point to the drive, the skin drive, the dermic drive is interesting particularly, you know, just to draw from my own experience in being tattooed, there's a sort of reaction from the needle. It's not something that's necessarily excruciatingly painful, but it's this steady rhythmic sort of pain. Eventually that becomes pleasurable because of, you know, if you're speaking biologically, at least supposedly there's endorphins released, et cetera, that give you sort of this natural sort of high or like a sort of a trance-like state that you can fall into eventually when you're being tattooed. So I think having experienced that, there's definitely something to this drive aspect of it. I don't know. There's, you know I mean? There's an intensity element with the needle and the pain and et cetera. And like that sort of exceeding, you know, the sort of, uh, the excessive jouissance, the, um, <laughs> the overwhelming, right. That kind of overwhelming sensation, the extra that you can, the body can barely sort of take. That's perhaps an interesting angle. Another angle just to note, you know, briefly and this is i was had dated someone who was an they were an ayurvedic healer i may have may have bumbled that pronunciation but they had um they told me about these different practices actually for if you're feeling anxious or something you can do this sort of tapping you can sort of find 
a place on your hand or something that you would tap and the sort of repetitive thing will sort of help get you out of this anxious mode of, you know, of ideation, et cetera. But that's a lot without a necessarily a question, but I'd just be curious if you have any kind of response with regard to particularly, I guess, the tattooing element. Well, your second aspect reminded me a little bit of something that we may or may not have spent time on when we had you on the first time, Leon, which was the function of stimming for understanding autistic subjects and their way of being in the world. That's just the second part. And so far as the tattooing, I don't really have a response. I haven't undergone that myself, but it was interesting hearing Cooper discuss it. But I'll, I'll, I'll leave this for Leon to respond. This has to do with the fact, Cooper, that this is only a project in its beginning, its inception. Sure. And the papers that I've shared with you, I think they are somewhat of the, the groundwork the building blocks, the more, let's say, abstract and initial theoretical foundations sure. for the development of a theory of the skin. And Cooper, you've mentioned tattooing, and I think that's a very good point. A very interesting skin phenomenon that is not, let's say, completely reserved to the sensory experience of the subject, but to its cultural value. Oh, absolutely. Yeah with symbolic value. One tattoos something meaningful most of the times. In this sense, it is many times an attempt to carve something in the other on the body. So that's a very interesting. Yeah, yeah, I like thing. that. But, you know, we also have makeup. Mm -hmm. And that, that's a huge phenomenon. Very Thinking true, about yeah. skin in terms of gender and identity. Mm -hmm. What about racism? Mm. It is a, a political, uh, subjective phenomenon that has to do many times with the skin. Also, clothes, you know, their fashion. It's a type of a, a second skin, right. somewhat of a second skin that is so important in our society. So this is where I'm taking the project that will culminate in a book in a few years. And the idea is to provide the, 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 the foundations, the psychoanalytic theoretical foundations to develop a cultural theory of the dermic drive. So this is where I aim, I'm aiming at. For Freud, the drive was also, let's say, there, there was a certain disjunction or binary in his thinking of the drive. He was thinking about it as exactly that thing between the somatic and the idea. This, I guess, will be most of what we will be discussing today. But he was also thinking about it in terms of culture, in the way mm -hmm. that the drive will affect a subject's positioning in culture, and even, right. even more than that, affect culture itself. So both of these are very interesting to me. But the current project, it starts with these more, let's say, theoretical, even more clinical perspectives on the dermic drive, my idea is to take it there further so we sure. can say something meaningful about these cultural instances. I don't want to you know, put you on an uncomfortable ground or anything of that nature, but I think there is some kind of interesting, with the tattooing in particular, it does have that very that sort of confluential, like that gap between culture and the body or you know what I mean? That's an interesting. It kind of doubles as both, right? Because there's the signifying aspect, but also the the drive aspect. I don't know. I find it really interesting, it, particularly the way that Lacan discusses the cut of the signifier. I mean, that's mm -hmm. perhaps mm -hmm. a bit too literal <laughs> of, <laughs> of, a, of, a, of a point, but I don't know. I think perhaps there's something 
there's just something really fascinating about that practice, I think. Just I, to I highlight very much that. agree. And I think we should also be sensitive to its different renditions because I don't think that everyone tattoos for the same reason right. or achieves the same effect in tattooing. And when we talk about tattoos, in terms of their symbolic value, maybe we are speaking more about these neurotic solutions. Uh, ah, yeah, yeah, uh, totally. Uh, but then, you know, there are many times, many cases where, let's say, psychotic subjects suggest that a certain incision, cut, dismemberment has to happen on their body. Yes, yes. And I want to say that it's not, I don't think that that is only a delusion because we sometimes see that these interventions on the body, they have an effect, a stabilizing effect. So it's interesting to think about tattooing in that dimension. Right. And yeah. Particularly, you know, when we talk about autism, there is a notion that has been developed in the past that's called castration in the real. I'm sorry for mentioning this so early in <laughs> because I'm not going to, to delve deeply to explain it, but just give you an example of a famous case from the, from the history of psychoanalysis of the wolf child. It's not the wolf man, it's the wolf child. It's a case elaborated by Rosine Lefort. And um, uh, this kid takes scissors and attempts to cut his own penis. And she develops it as a form of where the signifier does not operate, where the signifier does not create a cut on the body. And in this sense, there is no erogenous zone on the body. All the erogenous zones are plugged because there is no cut of the signifier. Sometimes subjects resort to an incision in the real, to a castration in the real. And this is what she says this child attempted to do. So we have all of these incisions, cuts, markings, right? Because it's not only tattooing, there's also transformations of the skin that don't have to do with ink. Hmm? Right. Piercing. The mark. Piercing, exactly. I think that we can definitely think about these, their dynamic qualities. And I think that it, it can be a very fruitful project. And I hope to, to work on it very soon. So we'll we'll be in touch. And yeah. <laughs> of course, I'm glad that we we we've started to, to go into this because one of the things you brought up, Leon, was you know when when Freud first sort of makes this notion of the ego as a kind of almost psychic projection of a surface, mm -hmm. right? He is, as you mentioned, he's on this. This is on the level of a kind of secondary process where we are in the midst of more what we might call ideational or conceptual terrain. It is interesting to think that Freud kind of is including several of the features that you point out that the skin functions as even just biologically, physiologically, you know, it's, it's both, you know, a means for receiving sense data, right? So it has a, it has the aspect of sensation, it has a protective aspect. And I think in particular, those two, perhaps forget the third, you mentioned it in, in, in your paper, and I'm, I'm blanking on the third. I, I apologize. It's those two, at least, that I think Freud highlights the most, right? Mm -hmm. that, that there's something about the ego that can not just be a receptive type of modulation where it's putting out the, the pseudopods, right? And, and the little feelers into the external world and coming back, but also more particularly when he's thinking about anxiety or thinking about a barrier needed right from from external stimuli in any case 
you're pointing out in an interesting way, and this might be a good way to get into this aspect of the drive on the on a more primary level, on the level of sort of the primary process. I think that that's fascinating and helpful to distinguish sort of where there's something more fundamental by going into drive theory rather than sort of sticking to the sort of more secondary metapsychological aspects of ego id, superego, et cetera. Do you mind, if you will, perhaps elaborating a little bit more about sort of what that level of the drive on the primary level? <laughs> Where we can go skin deep, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> let's do this and let's try and do it in a way that is maybe commonsensical. And let's try and, and delve into this by first getting a certain intuition of what we're talking about before getting deeply into this. As you said, this is one of the most complex concepts I've developed so far, and I think we can talk about it for hours. Let's begin with thinking about the skin in relation to the drive. So basically, you were saying, Tyler, that when we think about the ego, we think about these secondary ideational processes. So I'll suggest that you think about it as, let's say, whatever we can do with, let's say, conceptual means that have already been established or representative means that has already been established. I'm going to, to make a, a huge faux pas here by giving a, a certain allegory or metaphor. Think about it as, well, you have the computer. It is already installed with, with I don't know, with your operating system, mm -hmm. be it. Windows, Linux, Mac OS, whatever. And the secondary process has to do with, well, whatever we can do with that. And we can do a lot of things with that. Of course, this is where the, the site excels in its projection of a reality. This would be what we, I might in this way call secondary processes. And in these processes, yes, we can think about these elements in our lives, in our reality, that we can parallel to what we think of and conceive of as the skin, as the human skin. This is the realm of metaphor, a protection, sensation. As, as you were saying, there's so many things that, so many, let's say, associations that come to mind when we think about the skin. And let's reserve these to this level of secondary process. When we speak about primary processes, I think, and this is again me making this little faux pas here, just for the sake of our listeners that don't want to fall asleep in the beginning. <laughs> so these primary processes are the ones that form the underlying laws, the underlying infrastructure. Exactly. That enables the secondary processes. So let's say that primary processes are the ones that chisel what's happening under the hood of the operating system. So they will decide if you're going to be a Mac person or a Windows person, let's say, okay? So when I think about, when Freud thinks about the drive, thinks about it as that thing that determines the infrastructure, right? Right. that thing that sets the infrastructure in place. And he gives many examples for that. A good example would be the oral drive. And this is where we're going to step into psychoanalysis now and out yeah. of the sort of computer operating system metaphor world. The oral drive has to do, it has to do with the baby's demand to be fed. It is initiated, let's say, in the 
babies cry, the baby that cries appeals to the other uh, so that the other would feed it. And what is interesting about the oral object, for Freud, every drive has a corresponding object. So what is interesting about the oral object with, for Freud, for psychoanalysis, classically, it's the breast, is the fact that the breast is an object that is not completely on the side of the mother and not completely on the side of the child. It is somewhat of a disjunction, disjunctive object that doesn't mark the place of the baby or the place of the mother. It marks the disjunction between the two. This is where you know, psychoanalysts have been having a blast because there's so many sort of metaphors and associations that we can have. And you probably have thought about Melanie Klein here, for instance, was speaking about the good breast and the bad breast. And this is something that Freud somewhat spoke about because he was saying that the oral drive initiates a disjunction or sort of initiates a structural splitting in the psyche where we, as a result, we have a psychic space where, let's say, uh, the pleasurable will be inscribed and a psychic space for the unpleasurable. This is Klein's good breast and bad breast. But Freud speaks about these kind of injunctions. I should like to eat that and I should like to spit that out. So we have these spaces. So when we think about the oral drive and its function in the determination of the working of the psyche, we are thinking about a drive that creates a disjunction between the pleasurable and the unpleasurable. Now, you have to realize that this precedes any experience of pleasure and unpleasure. Right? It's, it precedes any secondary process that might inscribe in experience, in the history of the subject, an encounter with the pleasurable and the unpleasurable. It only makes a rudimentary chiseling, a disjunction of these, these two spaces. So you see, this is the function of the drive. Now, just before we, I'll make a small pause and I'll see if you guys want to take it in any direction. I'll just say that we are speaking about something that has to do with the body, but it is not, let's say, corporeal in the, let's say, extra psychic sense. It is the first impact of the body on the psyche. And this is why we speak about the oral drive. We, we don't speak about, I don't know, the truck driver, because, you know, babies hear trucks when they're, when, they're, when they're young. We're speaking about the oral drive because through the lips, uh, through the mouth, the baby experiences the world in a particular way. And these experience that hit the body, but they hit the body in the psyche. They hit the psychic body because, you know, the body is, uh, I've spoken about Merleau-Ponty and for him, the flesh is something completely different, but let's be colloquial here. The body is a piece of flesh, but the body is a human body when it is a psychic body, when it, it, it has something to do with the psyche. So the drive hits the body in a way that leaves a mark. And Freud says, with the oral drive, this mark is a certain disjunction between the pleasurable and the unpleasurable. And this is how he elaborates the functioning of the drive early on in, in the child's development. He calls this drive fixation. And he says that, that in a certain course of the development of the drive, there is a fixation where the drive stops developing and persists in an unaltered form. And in this sense, we think of the drive as determining particular characteristics having to do with the way the psyche operates. 
So in a way, the drive determines the way the psyche operates. So we have the oral drive for Freud, we have the anal drive. We also speak about phallic drive. Lacan speaks about that for some time, then he throws it out. He doesn't like that. Lacan adds to the list the scopic drive having to do with the eyes. And these are our openings to the world, right? We have to realize these are our openings to the humanized world. And Lacan also adds the invocatory drive that has to do with listening. And each of these drives has an object. So we said with the oral, it's the breast. With the anal, it's the feces. With the scopic drive, it's the gaze. And with the invocatory drive, it's the voice. And what is interesting about the Lacanian perspective on all of these is that we're not thinking about the breast as the breast, as a breast. Because when we do, if we do think about it as an actual breast, we start associating, we start thinking about things that have nothing to do with this initiatory level, with this initiatory level that precedes any secondary process in the psyche. So, of course, the, when we speak about the breast, we don't speak about a concept of breast because the baby is not there yet there. Sorry, the baby is not there yet. So when we think about the breast, we think about a disjunctive object that creates a, a certain disjunction between the pleasurable and the unpleasurable. And when we think about these objects in these structural linguistic terms, I believe that we can say much more interesting and useful things about them. And this is what I do about the skin. I think of the skin in terms of a drive that impacts the psyche. The skin for me is an opening to the world. And through its impact on the psyche, something is determined in terms of its modes of operation. I don't know if this would be skipping ahead a bit, but would go back to my example of the sort of the tapping sort of mitigate anxiety, because it reminded me a little bit of somewhat of like, you know, in our initial discussions about uh, Temple Grandin, she developed the machine, the hugging yes. machine. So I think it's interesting because of this skin as sort of the interface for the other or sensory information to, to enter the body and how that can be sort of a threat, or there's some type of anxiety about being penetrated by the other in some form, because I think for me, when I would get anxious in jobs, a lot of times it's whenever I have to um, speak to someone on the phone, like this creates a tremendous anxiety about, I don't know, what, what are they going to do with me? You know what I mean? I feel a sort of at the mercy of this sense, whatever is going to invade my body mm -hmm. is going to have this impact that I can't really interrogate necessarily or creates this, this nervous energy, right? This excitation within my own body. I don't know if that goes to anything, but... I know I didn't yeah, really I pose the question again. But. I think we can see that when we consider any of the partial drives, because, you know, there's in terms of the oral drive, we can eat, but we can also be eaten. In terms of the gaze, we can see, we can gaze, but we can also be gazed at. And these, you know, this persecutory gaze is a characteristic of the psychotic world. The psychotic is seen by the other. So... When we think about these, these examples that I think are clinical, we have to sort of understand that they have an underlying structure that can be determined or described on the level of each of the drives. But the question that I ask myself when I think about the skin is, what makes it singular 
in relation to the other drives. Because I'm making a wager here, you know, because yeah, mm -hmm. one can say there's the um, pinky drive. I don't know, whatever, right? Because there's a pinky and uh, the baby experience is a pinky. I'm making a wager that the skin is actually a drive by itself. And in doing so, I have to, it is my responsibility to give sufficient evidence to its uh, singular functioning. And particularly referring to its object, right? Because we haven't talked about what, what is its object? What is the object of the, of the dermic drive? I call it the dermic drive because mm -hmm. of the dermis. So I don't know if it's going to surprise you because we had a whole episode about this. But what I, what I hypothesize is that the, the object of the dermic drive is the rim. Ah, so this is the continuation. You see, this is, this is where we can connect this project to, to the previous one. But let me tell you something else, because I think the skin is extremely interesting when we, again, go back and think about it in terms of, of babies and their development. Because when psychoanalysts speak about this crucial time, that is very impactful on the psyche. You know, they, they already speak about experiences in the womb, right? So we, yeah, when the baby is born, it suckles on the breast, let's say. So, okay, so we have that at that point. But in the womb, the baby already hears the voice of the mother. And, and maybe, and many psychoanalysts have written about that, about the fact that there is already an impact of the voice on the child. And we think about this as the invocatory drive because the baby does hear what's going on and it does impact the psyche. So we hypothesize that things happen already in the womb. And what's interesting about the skin is that the skin takes shape so early in the development of the fetus. And I'm speaking about weeks five through eight. And already then, weeks five through eight, the skin gives the fetus access to sensory experience that precedes even the formation of the eyes, the ears, the tongue. So skin sensations are the first sensory representations that are imprinted on the human psyche before the, the fetus can even hear the voice of the mother. So the fact that the skin impacts the psychic so early on makes it such an interesting object of investigation and to me is sort of a first hint into its singular function, into the fact that it has a singular function that in this sense we have to say precedes whatever we have discussed in terms of the oral drive. There is no tongue, there is, there is no, the fetus cannot even, let's say, take up fluid into its mouth prior to the formation of the skin. The skin is there before. So this is sort of what my first clue or my first step into this domain of the skin as, as drive. And the hypothesis is, oh yeah, there's something going on there. There's something going on there in terms of the formation of the psyche that has to be, or well, would be distinct from what we associate with the other drives. It is fascinating that chronologically, as you're pointing out, ontogenetically, the skin would be prior. And also, it's interesting to think of, you know, as you brought up, you know, Freud and the oral drive, this sort of inside outside, I want, I would like to take that in, I would like to 
spit that out. That mm. too is already predicated on something that perhaps the dermic drive provides, which is psychogenetically this beginning of a separation or even figuring psycho psychologically this outside and inside. So that too, there seems to be a primacy for the skin. So not just ontogenetically, but perhaps psychogenetically. Yes, exactly. And I think that your intuition goes goes back uh, into the history of psychoanalysis, where psychoanalysts were thinking exactly that. Because they were thinking about the skin. And again, they were thinking about the skin in terms of ego formation. But we have to notice the concepts that they have they have been developing when they were discussing the skin. Particularly, you mentioned Esther Bic. So for her, she spoke about a primal skin function. We have Thomas Ogden that talked about the skin as achieving a certain form of boundedness, psychic mm -hmm. boundedness. Franz Tustin speaks about separateness. And we know that Beyond speaks about containment. Mm -hmm. And they all associate these, let's say, concepts with the functioning of the skin. So they're thinking about the skin in terms of boundary formation and psychic containment, right? And when they do that, they think about the skin and the effect that the skin as a surface of the body has on the psyche. This was something interesting to think about how, you know, in one of those theorists you mentioned, Esther Bick, that you shared a, one of her short papers and it did seem, if I'm sort of understanding her position well enough, it did seem that disturbances in the infant's, let's say, I don't know a better word for it, but it's the caregiver's maybe absence or perhaps lack of physical contact or something, some sort of disturbance early on in the first months of childhood, she's hypothesizing that interrupts or disrupts the development of some of a quote-unquote normal development of of these psychic structurations right of inside outside and and whatnot and so i'm i'm curious if i suppose is is this what she means by by second skin that there is some means of trying to like come to grips with this and compensate for this that leads to certain types of disorders later on in life. I wasn't exactly sure how much to take from her positions and perhaps how much you're running with some of her concepts before developing your own. So I suppose I would just be curious, where do you see her contribution helping you to, to formulate your own theses on the Dermot Drive? Esther Dick is a uh let's say a pioneer in the in the thinking about the about the skin function the psychic skin function she didn't write a lot but she did she did do a lot of um, very close observations of infants and i mean here like a few days after they are they're born so mm. she was very interested in that period of their existence and just briefly we can say something briefly about her big was uh, very interested in the skin and for her Almost or even all psychopathologies can be traced back to early skin disturbances. And you've said this correctly. She was speaking about what, what is very popular today outside the, the, the world of psychoanalysis, this term skin to skin contact. Mm -hmm. So she was interested in this, in this 
type of contact. And we're speaking about uh, the baby's skin touching the caretaker's skin or the baby being cared for, washed, its diapers being replaced, etc. Mm -hmm. So all these rituals that have to do with, with tactile sensory experience for BIC, th these were extremely important. And when they are not regulated, or lacking in the early life of the child, she says. But this brings about many, many pathologies, many, many mm -hmm. psychopathologies that she uh, that she discusses. And you've mentioned the second skin. So for big those babies that did not proceed to establish the primary skin function, so mm -hmm. they lacked the skin-to-skin -skin contact, and then this function was not integrated, then they attempt to compensate by constructing a second skin. And she speaks about several ways that children do that but for her the second skin is always patho a pathology it, it, it always has right. all, it never is truly a compensation for the primary skin function this is the gist of, of what big is about and in my work with big and i didn't only work with her right i also base myself a little bit on ogden and tustin and i think franz tustin where I disagree with many of her conclusions. She's an outstanding scholar, especially in the field of autism in psychoanalysis. And you can find the nuggets of gold among her many uh, theorizations that are mainly object relation theory based, but you can find these amazing nuggets of gold. And this is what I also find in BIC. But what I do in a way is uh, I take these nuggets and I use them to construct a, a perspective that I would think that I might be uh, exaggerating, but might irritate, actually, these psychoanalysts in, in the fact that it somewhat goes against what they were saying. So it is, in a way, uh, you know how, uh, how many, uh, well, Lacan, but many other of his followers are used to taking these notions from the history of philosophy, for instance, and using them in a completely wrong way for their own profit. So this is something that I do with these nuggets of gold that I find. I use them in developing a structural linguistic theory of the drive that yeah. we cannot say is a continuation of whatever these psychoanalysts have done. But it is, in a way. Call it a, a dialectic uh, step. Mm -hmm. Let's call it that. What I have done so far is developed the notion of the dermic drive or the function of the dermic drive and the structuration of the psyche in two dimensions. The first, as you've mentioned, is more mathematical. And I've developed that in one paper that has been published a, a few years ago. What I'm so upset about is that it is so complex to just explain the mathematics of it that whenever I try to present it in a conference, people just um, are completely baffled before I get to the punchline, which I think is, is the important thing. So this is one, one aspect, and we can start with that and see where we can get to. And the other aspect, which I developed in a paper that has been accepted for publication will be published soon in a collection with Rutledge Publishing, in a collection about the drive, thinks about the dermic drive in terms of punctuation. What do you say? Should we, where, where are we going now? Well, I, I myself, I really uh, enjoyed the, I mean, I, and I do think that it helped I, I think both papers obviously help to inflect and, and enrich one another, but I was 
really struck by, for me, intuitive, the different topological spaces yeah. uh, were for understanding some of the work that we even talked about. I mean, some of the, a lot of the stuff that we went into when we first discussed your book, for example, the difference between language as signs, language as signifier. But I did think that this, this development of topological space, uh, which I'm not sure if you're taking this terminology from Burgoyne, but T0, T1, T2, and these, these differentiations of, I don't know if complexity is the word psychically, right? But these differing strengths of separation, if you will, that, that you describe in developing signifying spaces as though, as, you know, we, we talked about uh, as linguistic subjects, as being situated in the use of language, conceptual modalities, et cetera, you know, we may take for granted that, that we're sort of in T2 space where we can separate concepts out and, and distinguish them. But to a certain extent, your work, you've gone, I mean, what I was really struck by in your book, The Autistic Subject, is how this presupposition that it's sort of, that we take for granted is not something that is as common as we might think. And that this use of language, as I said, that I, that I take for granted, is not something that is necessarily a given for autistic subjects. And I suppose you might, and again, you might be able to tell me more, but I suppose that there would be varying, these different levels of linguistic facility. We might suppose that some subjects would perhaps be on a, a T0 level with a very rudimentary type of ability to distinguish signifiers, either with difficulty or perhaps not at all, but then there might be a little bit more facility on a T1 level. And obviously we can describe what these levels are, but this is a question, I suppose, of being able to, what, distinguish and uh, like, carry out these... Yeah, like articulating those gaps, because I'm I'm thinking of like, um, you know, when you listen to a different language, it's not necessarily the words, but it's where do you, where are the gaps? So mm -hmm. where is that barrier, that punctuative element that I think, you know, is a good metaphor for the skin as well? Like, where are those boundaries at? Like, where is the boundary between myself and the other? And like, maybe for the autistic, there's like an that sort of flux is very threatening, you know, it seems like at least that's my that's my immediate instinct is to feel like there's this threat of the other this threat of being absorbed or being invaded for is kind of how I that's kind of where I go, but I don't know. So let's delve right into it. <laughs> when Tustin, when Ogden speak about boundedness, separateness, as, as, as you were saying, Cooper, they also speak about these anxieties that happen there and these experiences that a baby might go through that have to do with these um, notions, separateness, boundedness, etc. And I think that their theory is very strong when we think about it descriptively. It's, it's, it has a descriptive power. And I think this is why uh, many of Klein's theorizations are very compelling to many psychoanalysts because I think they have a very strong descriptive value. But, you know, when we are not speaking about the experience of an adult, which is full of meaning, metaphors, and associations, when we're speaking about fetuses, or when we're speaking about day-old babies, 
I personally find it hard to believe that their, let's say, their experience, their psychological experience is as developed, as complex as an adult. And in this sense, I don't know if we are too rash to think that a notion so complex as boundedness, as separateness, as distinction between me and the other is already something that is part and parcel of their experience. So for me, when we're speaking about boundedness and separateness in terms of the skin function, for me, we are speaking about processes of primordial representation, right? Not these secondary processes, but whatever constructs the rootstock of representation of these secondary processes. And in this sense, we're not talking about a psychological experience. Right. We are talking about setting up the system. It is before we have the desktop, before we have the interface, right? Mm -hmm. I'm getting back there. When we deal with these type of, let's say, constitutive functions, I think that it is best to formalize them in a more, let's say, formalistic language that has to do with abstract representation of boundaries and separation of spaces, and not with a metaphorical, lyrical language that has to do more with the experience, or the psychological experience of the adult. And this is where topology shows its face. I promise to you too and to the listeners, we won't get our hands dirty with the mathematics. I'll try and explain these in more, let's say, intuitive terms, yes? But basically, this is where topology, this field of mathematics shows its face because this is what topology does. Topology is a mathematical tool to conceptualize, let's say, spaces and their relationships. And with it, we can conceptualize not only uh, mathematical entities, we can speak about anything. We can speak about, as you've said, Cooper, signifying spaces. We can speak about relational spaces, psychic spaces, sport arena spaces. We can conceptualize all of these using topology. So topology is a language that enables us to talk about boundedness, about separateness, without resorting to concepts that will run our associations wild, like breasts, feces, gazes, all of these things. And this is why I say, and I had this thought a little bit after getting into this theory, and I asked myself, my God, I would say, these subjects that Bick talks about, that Tustin talks about, these subjects that lack a skin, they lack a psychic skin, or their psychic skin is full of holes, how do we help them? How do we assist? How do we give them a skin? And I was starting to, my, my, my imagination was running wild. What do we do? Do we, do we cover them? Do we hug them? Do we, what is the treatment? What, what, is, what kind of a treatment can we offer them when we speak about the skin in these terms? And this is where I was saying, oh, th- this is a bit wild. This is a bit strange. And this is why I, I suggest to think about the skin in, in this particular paper in terms of separation between very, very simple, basic units of representation. So these are not units that have meaning, but these are the units that enable us to conceive of meaning in the first place. So again, I'm not gonna go, I'm not gonna be very explicit here, 
just so we can speak about some more things and not just explain this theory of math and theory of language here, but let's think about it in this way. There is something like an idea. An idea is, ma is made out of building blocks. And these building blocks, they're not ideas. They are the building blocks of ideas. And when we have a bunch of building blocks come together, then we have an idea, right? But the building block by itself does not represent anything. They just interact with each other. And when we think about the psyche in terms of an operating system, we think about it in terms of the laws, the rules that govern the interaction between these building blocks. And what I argue is that the drives, they set in place these rules, these laws that govern the interactions between these building blocks. And when I think about the dermic drive particularly, I describe it as enabling the separation between these building blocks in the psyche. Now, separation, usually, when we think about it, is separating between one thing and another. So I'm saying, I'm a person, and there's another person, and they're not part of me. I have a pen in my hand, and I have a cup in my other hand, and they are two different things, so they're separated. This is the, the simple way to think about separation. But what's so great about mathematics and topology in general is that it allows us to think about levels of separation, what is called separation strength, in more abstract terms. So mathematically speaking, we don't only have separation as a separation between A and B. We have different levels of separation that we can sort of position in a lattice of separation strengths. And we can describe relationships between elements using these different degrees of separation strength. Now, in the paper, I describe several of those. In topologies, in topology, there are more. And I rely here on, as Taylor was saying, on Bourgoyne's paper, Autism and Topology, which I stumbled upon one day and I was saying, my God, this paper is so great. <laughs> and I developed it further in, in my paper on, the, on autistic disturbances in skin containment. And what I describe here, as, as Tyler was saying, I describe there are different levels of separation. And I use this, uh, these terms from, from topology, T0, T1, T2 spaces. Basically, for our listeners today, these are different degrees of separation, different strengths of separation. If you insist, Tyler will go into that. But I'll just say they're different. And quite intuitively, I think we can agree that if we have units, building blocks of meaning, the more we can distinguish between them, the more we can separate between them, the more representative power that they will have. So again, this is just intuitive description here. If we can only, let's say, distinguish between two colors in the world, it will be more difficult for us to conceive of different objects. If we only conceive of two dimensions in the world, it will be more difficult for us to conceive of, let's say, phenomena that happen in three dimensions. And the more we can separate between elements in our world, the better our, let's say, comprehension of the world will be. This is just an illustration. Mathematically speaking, the stronger separation between these elements, these building blocks of representation is, the more fun we can have with them mathematically. So the more we can do with them mathematically. Now, I'll, I'll patch up the argument here. What Bourgoin 
suggests is that we view the psyche as a signifying space. So he, he says, let's, for the sake of our discussion, think of the psyche as this space that includes signifying units. And these signifying units, they interact. And through their interaction, we have a psychological experience, an experience of a reality, a humanized reality. And what he says is that if we think of the psyche in this way, we can also conceive of different degrees of separation that might, might govern the operation of this psyche. And what he says, and I developed this in this paper, is that when we think about autism and the way that, me, that the, the world becomes meaningful for autistic subjects, we can identify particular degrees of separation that are in operation there. And what he basically says is that in autism, there is a reliance on specific degrees of separation strength in the process of representation. But he says that there is, let's say, a, a lack of access to a particular separation strength that is called T2, which is elaborated mathematically in the paper. And that if we think of the psyche in this way and of autism in this way, we can understand it much better. We can understand what stands behind the autistic experience of the world. And well, what stands behind it is a certain setback in the capacity to separate between signifying units. This is generally the argument about the topological argument. Now, when we think about it in terms of the dermic drive, let's do it. So what I, what I argue is that the dermic drive, or the skin as the source of the dermic drive, establishes in the psyche several degrees of separation strength that enable to distinguish between signifying units. And let's say different subjective experiences can be traced back to the implementation of these separation strengths. Now, let's go back to the example that I gave in the beginning, the oral drive. So we're saying that the oral drive has to do with some designation of some assignment of pleasure value to signifying spaces. But you see that this type of distinction between the pleasurable and the unpleasurable already relies on our capacity to distinguish between these two spaces. To say this is one space and this is the other, and they do not overlap. So we might say that the dermic drive and its functioning already establishes certain capacities to distinguish between signifying units on which the oral drive bases its division between the pleasurable and the unpleasurable. And what basically I argue in this paper is that we can think of the rim as the object of the dermic drive, and we can think about the rim in several modalities. So the rim in its manifestation in several separation strengths. And if we uh, want to conceive of autism in a certain way, we conceive of it as, let's say, uh, the experience of autism, the world of autistic subjects is conditioned on a psyche, on a signifying space that in which the rim is uh, engendered in its first and second modalities of strength. But the third modality is not there. It's the second skin, what they call the second skin for me, would be attempts 
to compensate for this, let's say, setback in the operating system. And there are many ways to do that. Yes, there are ways to do that. And in this sense, if we think about the clinic of autism from this perspective, basically what it relies on is accompanying the subject in climbing in the ladder of separation strength. So it is the idea that work with autistic subjects is work to, that enables them to rely on higher levels of separation in their existence in the world. So it's a it's sort of a different way to look at it, a different perspective to frame it. And this gives a, a somewhat of an answer to this question that I was asking was, well, how do, how do we do it? And how do we give a skin? We don't give a skin. We, through the clinical encounter, we establish a capacity, a capacity to distinguish between signifying units. You know, just sticking with this author that you mentioned, Burgoyne, you know, you, there was there's something interesting involved with, there is almost like a tightrope walk to be done here because strengthening, let's say, that T1 space, that, that intermediate space that's not yet fully, or, or not yet the, the containment rim, that third modality, right? If there's three modalities, let's just say, right? If, if we're sticking with T0, T1, T2, there was this interesting notion that your question, your practical question of therapeutic, of working with autistic subjects to strengthen this modality, we're going to ask this pretty straightforward question. How do we try to strengthen this T1 space without causing unbearable pain, right? How can we, how can we begin to modulate and strengthen without torturing, right? Because that would obviously be the, the diametrical opposite of what's trying to be done, which is to try to, in a certain way, strengthen and help, but, but without sort of overwhelming, I suppose, in a certain way, those with whom you're, you might be working in the autistic clinic, as you said. And, and so I think that that's, that's something that, again, you know, it's, it's good to keep that point in mind, right? That it's talking about these things theoretically and thinking about new theoretical frameworks for posing these questions can also help to perhaps, ideally at least, provide different methods, different means of framing the problem such that, you know, we have to keep that, that that's obviously like a base level issue right that not to uh not to cause this this unbearable pain in in working through whether we call it the second skin or, or working through and building off of what you refer to as this foreclosure of that third rim that third modality the, the containment rim which would be that t2 space that i suppose the the highest level of separability it is interesting to think about that when one of the key aspects of the clinic is the, I suppose, the bombardment of stimuli or part of the, part of the, maybe that's just a simple question and maybe it's even a baseline one and naive, but I, I would ask you, Leon, what do you make of this, this sort of point of that Bergogna is bringing forward, this unbearable pain that might be inflicted by trying to strengthen these, uh, strengthen conceptual separation or, or whatnot. Right, and, and this is something that we hear autistic subjects speak about many times. This, um, the boundary of the body is, mm -hmm. is not functioning. 
there's a invasion of stimuli and we hear that from autistic subjects that are um, you know uh, have uh, have established um, a substantial amount of freedom and satisfaction in their lives I'm, I'm not speaking about autistic subjects that exist in in states that are more um, excruciating for them but basically think about it this way we are bombarded with stimuli mm-hmm. all the time mm-hmm. and the capacity to separate between units of representation is crucial for our, for our capacity to exist in a world that is not complete chaos. And what we see is that when we rely on these more initial levels of separation strength, we can create a division between us and the world, but then we are lacking, let's say, um, we are living in a more diluted world that has less objects. And we are living in a world that is more isolated, right? So it is always possible to rely on these not as strong levels of separation strength. And this is what we see many times in autism in the first years of autism. But then when one climbs this ladder of separation, let's call it, this is how Borgoyne calls it, one achieves access to a more rich world, to a world with more objects, with more calm concept with more meaning and one opens up finally opening up to the social bond so what we see then in autism and then what we see in country in the clinic of autism is in the first would be a reliance on lower levels of separation that are life-saving yes but they leave the subject in a more isolated more diluted world and then the work in the, the clinic would be to create uh, to gain access to higher levels of separation in order to enrich the world of the subject and step out of let's say forms of radical isolation but as you said this cannot be done by force a perfect example would be one that i've heard in uh, in one of my uh, supervision sessions of uh, of a, a practitioner that met uh, with an autistic person and the question of empathy was sort of raised and there were certain complaints about it and this practitioner sort of was forcing the subject to do empathy exercises which exist in particular forms of of psychotherapy I think gestalt psychotherapy particularly but basically this was excruciating for the subject and and he left he left the treatment, because this is where we force the subject into a place that there is no, that it has no access to. It is like, uh, I many times say, forcing autistic people to be neurotic. And on the other side, I can give you an example from a, a very classic example from the history of psychoanalysis that maybe demonstrates the saying that a broken clock shows the right time two times a day. And this is a very famous case from Melanie Klein. The case of this, it's called the case of Little Dick. And it's a child called Dick. There's a scene, there's a very famous scene where Klein stages this game with toy trains. And um, she says, uh, this is very Kleinian, right? She says, this train is father train. And the other train is Dick train. And then Dick picks up the Dick train and he rolls it to the window. And then Klein says, well, the station is mommy. Mm-hmm. Dick is going into mommy. This is a very unfortunate choice of a name for a case, but okay. Right, Dick is right. going into mommy. And then there's a certain effect 
that uh, happens and she describes a certain progress in, in their work, etc., etc. When Lacan reads this case, and you know, this is a classic Kleinian Oedipal interpretation that we see work with, with children, and he's very skeptical there. And what he basically says is that what Klein does is she crudely forces her symbolization of the Oedipal myth on the child's play. And, well, what uh, Lacan says there is that rather than this kind of, and, and the clients here will have to excuse me, this kind of like mommy, daddy, mambo, jumbo happening, rather mm-hmm. than this, this whole thing for a child that basically lives in a completely impoverished world, like the idea that this kind of symbolic play will happen is very far-fetched, but okay. So right, rather right. than that happening, what's actually happening is Klein introduces Dick to the possibility of distinguishing between two signifiers. This is Dick, this is mommy. There's an introduction of a capacity to separate. So it has nothing to do with this metaphorical relationship between the father and the mother, etc. But it, it has to do with initiating a mode of access to language that enables Dick to establish a degree of separation between right. elements. Right. right. So it's not about the level of meaning, again. It's about the level of the me- unit, units of meaning making. Right. So this is an example of, of work that might be done with an autistic child. And Klein reports that it was great. Yeah, that it, it really had an impact, this interpretation. So we say, yes, we have here work with an autistic child. And the child is introduced into a, a situation where he realizes that objects can, in fact, be separated when they are attached to a linguistic utterance. So a degree of separation is established or access to a degree of separation is established. And then we see, as Klein says, progress in the work with this child. So this is why I think it is so important to step back from the level of metaphor, back from these kind of crude impositions of our own associations about the skin, about the world, especially when working with autistic children that are not yet have not yet established access to this mode of symbolic representation. We are not working symbolically with these children, not yet. You don't have to respond to this, and this is maybe a little bit more for the audience, but I don't know. I just, I can't help but think of the body without organs and just the way that it sounds like with these cases of autism, that it's almost like the, the sort of flows to the, are kind of blocked off, or there's something that's isolating, but it's also kind of this interesting reversal because it feels like the body without organs is more of a move to sort of, I don't know, be a more liminal understanding of objects. But I don't know if that has any relevance to any of this, but that's kind of where I was thinking. And just the way this kind of like, you know, just thinking of the development of the child in the same context of like the earth, a molten earth, right? It has to develop some land mass and water and like these distinctions before it can really start to produce something else besides this sort of void or silence. There was something that that Leon said in in our first episode with Leon, you kind of mentioned this notion of the autistic body is one where the orifices are are plugged. And that sort of reminded me a little bit of this language that Coop's bringing out with the body without organs. It was also this notion that the body without organs experiences this extreme pain attracting the machines. And so one of the moves is, is to repel them, right? There is this kind of something similar with almost like overstimulation that the, the attracting of of these uh, 
forcing of of these signifying spaces or, or forcing of these uh, these different methods can be intolerable. That's sort of where I was perhaps thinking, Coop, that you might be uh, yeah, bringing, yeah. bringing that in. But but yeah, it's I mean, all of this is interesting. And uh, I, I do appreciate you, Leon, for, for going through the the topological aspect, because I did think it was a very nicely organized way of of bringing some of these things together that you know you that you formulated in your in your book and it helped me to kind of think about different moving higher up on the echelon if you will of formulating signifying spaces that that sort of make at least it makes clearer to me what's at stake and and also i appreciate you bringing in you know lacan's point because it does seem like there's something to that right about it is about this separation strength rather than imposing a, a symbolic sort of blanket onto onto the space right and this is why for me autism is not about the mother it is not about blaming the mother as many people say is the case in psychoanalysis we might say it's about the mother tongue and mm-hmm. here I mean the language that first impacted the subject, right? Mm-hmm. The way that language first impacted the subject, this is what I call the mother tongue. It's not necessarily the tongue of the mother, but uh, this is the idea. And I'll just say, Cooper, just quickly saying that, and maybe we can then move to this punctuation idea. And yeah, I think your, 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 your intervention here was very valuable because it emphasized the fact that the psyche is not only a structure, it is not only a structure where units of meaning interact with each other, it is also a place where libido operates, libidinal economy. Right, right. There is a difference between this energy, let's say, we sometimes call it this way, right? And whatever happens between these linguistic units. Human existence or the human world is not just a representation. It is a representation that is invested with libido. And this is, well, we might say that the world itself, the humanized world itself, is whatever is invested in libido. So when we say that there's a sort of impoverished, diluted world in the case of little dick, for instance, or some autistic infants, we're not saying that there is a limited amount of objects in the world. Not per se. Uh, We don't mean that, you know, the world lacks objects. We are talking about the humanized world. You've mentioned this term Umwelt. Basically, in in what Cooper was sort of insinuating here, we're talking about a limitation of the capacity to invest libido in objects. Right. Yeah, yeah. This is why the world is diluted, right? And what I argue here is that, well, we have we have to depend on the separation between linguistic units in order for libido and for Lacanians this would be jouissance, right? In order for libido to be invested in objects, because if we cannot separate between signifying units, we cannot determine objects to be invested with. So what we see in autism many times is an excess of libido, an excess of jouissance that is completely wild. It right. is not. It is not invested in a world. So the world is diluted, but there is an excess of libido. There is an experience of excitation of the body that exceeds whatever is fathomable for the subject, whatever is in the in the world. So you have to imagine yeah. it invades this diluted world from where? From somewhere right. that is not in the world. It is a quite, I think, uh, and we, we see quite profound descriptions of this of this kind of process. 
that's so counterintuitive. I just, it's very interesting. Like you would, I think you would assume the autistic subject is not like there's a lack of investment, but it, it's almost like the, it's the opposite. It's like the whole social is flooded with pure like jouissance. And so that's like overwhelming. There's no, there's sort of no, uh, there's not a structure to sort of grab onto. There's not a structure to stabilize and like, you know, something for the drive to kind of, to latch onto, I suppose. Exactly. To Maybe that's a crude service. way of saying. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. There, yeah, circuit. I like that. Yeah, that's a good way mm-hmm. to punctuate yes. it. And then, uh, well, when there is no circuit, the driver just runs wild. Yeah, kind of like a, I'm thinking of a fire hose that's just like, you know, it's just going off. It's just flailing around without any kind of, that's yeah. good. So that was a side note. Now, this, in your other paper that we looked at for today, the skin is the source of the dermic drive, modes of dermic punctuation, and the containment of meaning. I think the reason why I wanted to start with your your other essay on skin containment was that that it feels like now that we've kind of got a base model for thinking slightly different topological strengths, these different spaces, if you will, T0, T1, T2, now we can kind of see some concrete examples of working through on the level of language, right? Uh, in terms of working from minimal punctuation to loose punctuation, right? So we're able to think about these, I suppose, these different strengths in terms of, I guess, now out of the realm of mathematics, but more in the realm uh, that we're perhaps more familiar with in our everyday lives of sort of signifying or stringing together signifiers to to form propositions, sentences, etc. Exactly. And, and here in this paper, I also take a step away from autism particularly and speak about psychosis as well, mm-hmm. try to describe psychotic phenomena and explain their working using these terms that have to do with the dermic drive. So this is a paper where, where I try to say that the dermic drive is not something that we only speak about when we speak about autism. It is something that we speak about generally in psychoanalysis. This is another dimension to the paper. And as you say, I go there and speak about, particularly about signifiers. I think we talked about it last time, so I won't go through the whole spiel of what is a signifier and, but we'll, yeah. Yeah, no, I just meant that, that, that if the listener is interested, we have two episodes with Leon where we do go through some of these things that, that are very helpful and including discussions of the rim, for example, which we just talked about with the circuit. And I will say, and I'll, I'll give the floor back to you, Leon, in your book, you painstakingly work through the phenomenon of foreclosure, specifically in psychosis, right? Uh, And so all of that is available and also gives kind of credence to why analysis of psychosis and working through it, which, as you said, is more perhaps typical of the clinic broadly, is still important for understanding certain phenomena as well in in your work on, on the autistic subject. So I won't delve deeply into what a signifier is, but I'll just say that when we think about language today, we don't think about this field that has words which refer to concepts, for instance, mm-hmm. or objects in the world. Right. We don't think that language works in this way. It is not that we hear words that refer to a concept. We hear sounds, right? And this is how we speak. We hear signifiers. These are little sounds like a, i, u, a. And whenever they are interposed next to each other in a specific way, in a specific accent, in a specific language, in a specific context, in a specific tone, mm-hmm. we understand something, we conceive of something. And this is why I can say the same word, but means something completely different. And right. the great example is the word shit. Or the word it, fuck. Exactly. These are <laughs> words 
that could have many, many meanings depending on the tone, on the context, etc. Language is not about words, it's about these tones and the context between. Right, these. yeah, the relational aspect of it. I even think exactly. that something like, I mean, this is to get metaphorical and this might be working backwards, but just to think about this, I guess the way that both cinema and even comic books work relative to where the cuts are, the gutter space, the gaps in between the signification aspect of it, right? It's about learning to distinguish those. And you don't just come ready out of the oven, so to speak, ready to make those. So if you like took someone rant who had not been sort of acculturated and showed them a movie, how would they be able to understand perhaps? Because they wouldn't, it would sort of be all like one series of images. And if you don't understand where things relate via these punctuative aspects of it, then it's kind of a a mess. It's like a overwhelming. Yeah, it's like this intense experience, but there's no sort of foundation to grasp. Precisely, precisely. And this is how language works, right? Because let's say we go to a foreign country with a very different language than what we're used to. We hear speech as a constant flow that we don't really know where the gaps are. Exactly. And this is why an important step in learning a new language, and this happens when you move to a foreign country, and all of a sudden you get this sort of, oh, here word starts. You don't understand what the word means. <laughs> you understand what the sentence means, but now you sort of realize, oh, these are the laws of punctuation. Right. They determine when a word or a sentence starts, but also they distinguish between signifiers within words. Right. So these laws of punctuation, they are laws of language. And I think about these laws of punctuation as a feature that is established by the Dermic Drive and is distinct from the features that are established by the oral, anal, scopic, and invocatory yeah. drives. And I divide these in, in the second paper to levels of separation strength. So we they, it corresponds to the mathematical paper. Uh, mm-hmm. But here I speak about it using examples from language and clinical examples that demonstrate how punctuation works in language. You know, I'm even thinking about, to go back to the libidinal investment aspect of this and your point about the word like shit or fuck or what have you and how they're the same word, but the libidinal intensity is different. I would even think extend this to the skin, right? A touch from your from a stranger is different from someone your partner, your lover or what have you or your mother, right? It's interesting that that the same sort of unit of signification maybe we could call it that has the different intensities of investment just as an aside. And I like that we're that we can see the different punctuation strengths. And yeah, you're right, Coop. I mean, I was thinking reading Leon yesterday, I was thinking all about Levinas, he has this whole spiel on the caress, this phenomenological interpretation of it. So you're right. I mean, like this, you know, you might have a in the abstract, it might be the same movement, but it's not it doesn't have all the same meaning. And I think it's it is interesting to think of zero punctuation, if that's the lowest level, if that's where we're, we're thrown into a new country, and we don't know where where word begins or ends, we just have a, a flow, that would be, I guess, the degree zero of punctuation, perhaps? Well, the degree zero would uh, entail no separation at all. So there, there is there is a complete, uh, maybe a better way to say is a flow, because mm-hmm. a radical presence, not an absence. Like, right. everything right. yeah, 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 all, yeah. all at once, how is this movie called? Uh, yeah, everywhere, <laughs> everything, everywhere, all at once, I believe. Yes. is that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. exactly. That's good. Let's get back in, in, in terms of the, the effect, let's say the... Um, 
investment that we have in particular words or sentences depending on the, their punctuation. So I'll give you an example. And again, in this paper, I give a lot of example. And I think that's where it, 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 it excels or it's, mm -hmm. it's strength. So for instance, the sentence, let's eat, grandma. This is something that kids would say to grandma. Let's eat, grandma. It's not so, uh, it do doesn't shock us. But when I take the comma out of the sentence and I say, let's eat, grandma, then we start thinking, oh my God, what's, <laughs> what's going on? So you see, punctuation is so important in the establishment of the world and the meanings in the world that I think we have to pay careful attention to it. And what I think about the, the dermic drive and its function is that the dermic drive, it establishes these punctuations in language. So we're talking about no zero punctuation, as you said, and I, I talk about minimal punctuation and then loose punctuation. And when I do that, I, I sort of give examples. And maybe we can give one example and let's see where we can take it from there of this loose punctuation. And this is something that I would associate with the world of autism and the world of, of psychosis, where there is a punctuation, there is a division between signifiers, but this division is, let's say, it's not complete. So if we might say standard punctuation, this is the third level that I talk about, is a level where, the, where any signifier in the psyche can all, always be distinguished from another signifier, in this sense interposed, and in this sense in gender meaning. In loose punctuation, we do have the capacity to differentiate between signifiers, but many times when we do differentiate between them, they do overlap, they do mix up. Again, this is just to illustrate, there's a certain mixing up between these units of these sound units. And then this has an effect. This has an effect on, on our comprehension, but also on the way that the world unravels. So one example that I give to this type of phenomena is what many times psychiatrists call associative looseness. And this is where I take the loose punctuation from. Hmm. It's also called derailment. And this is what we see in psychosis, where there's somewhat of a confused or vague speech, where someone would jump from one idea to another idea without any contextual reference. And this is what is called the loosening of punctuation. And it's a positive symptom of schizophrenia today with delusions and hallucinations. And this is in DSM today. Now, what it seems is that there is an inconsistency in these sentences, in this type of speech that is thematic, right? And the idea that meanings are, are conflated there, it's sort of like loose, it has no context, it has, it's completely wild. And I say, well, it, it, it might sound this way, but I think when we look at it from the perspective of not of the meanings, but of the units of meaning that create meaning, we might say that it has to do with a disturbance that has to do with punctuation. And this has to do with what is called in Lacanian work or teaching uh, the metonymic process. Right. So metonymy is a concept from the world of linguistics. And mm -hmm. basically, we, we might say that metonymy takes place when we express a sentence that its blocks have a lexical connection. Right. So I give a, a, an example of a poet writes books. Mm -hmm. right? So we have several chains of signifiers here. Poet writes books. And they are thematically related, right? Because a poet is a man who writes. And when you write, you can write books or papers or pamphlets. So there's a connection on the level of meaning. 
So metonymic speech is characterized by the fact that it remains thematically consistent when one speaks. Now, in order to identify thematic relationships between words, we require punctuation. Right? And I gave the example, let's eat grandma mm -hmm. or let's eat grandma. They mean two completely different things. So thematically, they express two completely different things. And this is also true to the punctuation that is internal to words, to words themselves. And I take this example from a famous comedy skit, a British comedy skit. So there's a guy and he comes to the store and he says, I need four candles. <laughs> so the guy, he goes and he brings him four candles. Why do you bring him four candles? But he says, no, no, fork handles. Yeah, so he wants the handles of forks. He wants to work in the garden. So you see, four candles, the punctuation is internal to the word. And in order to reconstruct a message from the sound that we hear, well, we need to rely on punctuation. And what I argue is that associative looseness in psychotic speech is rooted in a loose mode of punctuation. Right? So it's similar to the example that I gave right now, but let's say it's more extensive. So we have, let's say, every word, you know, has signifiers within it. And without our capacity to fully punctuate between these sounds, they overlap and they conflict. So what this causes is a process of meaning making that is disorganized, but is not, is not lacking thematically. It is actually dependent or even leaning on homophony and intertextuality. So we see that disturbances in punctuation, uh, which I say has to do with the work of the dermic drive, describe associative looseness in terms of, let's say, a mode, a hypertrophied mode of contextualization. So a hypertrophic mode of metonymic speech, where there's a conflation between two sounds and all of a sudden we start working in that direction. When we look on this phenomenon in this way and, and we conceive of it as a disturbance that relies on a certain mode of punctuation, but we can understand it in a different way and we can work with it in a different way. So this is one example that I give in the paper or phenomenon we see in psychosis that is based on a leaning of the sub, on a leaning on a loose mode of punctuation. Mm -hmm. So in the sense, it is a functioning of the dermic drive that have established a certain reliance or strong reliance on loose punctuation. This is why I take it in the second paper, and I try to be a bit more clinical and provide more examples from the clinic in order for later scholars, practitioners to maybe build up on this theory. I do think it's interesting about, you know, even if the standard punctuation section, we might, as I kind of mentioned earlier, you know, just, oh, that's, that's self-evident, but there's something interesting that comes out in that section where it is about, and this is back to your discussion of metonymy and the hypertrophy, you know, experience there and the loosening is that we really see more specifically come out is this question of containment and, con and containing, whether it be the, the slipping of the signifier, whether it be containing even the slipping of the phonetic connectivity of the words, like in the example you gave four candles, four candles, right? This question of containment comes out very clearly in this ultimate section, which I think helps to give, that was really where I started to understand more deeply this uh, 
what you've shared with us just about the containment skin for the container skin, for example, from your, your other papers. So things started to come together. They started to, I think be, I started to see a little bit more clearly I, I, the outlines, if you will, we could say the outlines, the limits of the container, right. Of, of, <laughs> of the, of the meaning you were trying to convey, but that, that to me was very helpful for putting things in perspective. And you know, this is uh, an important point and maybe we can end with that unless yeah. You might have some other questions, but this is an important point, and it's one of the most provocative points also in the perspective that I'm developing, because mm -hmm. it is rooted on a lineage of psychoanalytic theorizations that have to do with the question of containment. This, again, I say is a very popular concept because it is very descriptive. It is lyrical. We identify with it. We feel that it says something about our own experience. But when I speak about the, the dermic drive and the skin is the source of the dermic drive, and as you said, I speak about mode, modes of dermic punctuation mm -hmm. in the containment of meaning. This is what I, I speak about. I speak about containment and I play here on the double meaning of the word. So I'm not speaking about this containment that has to that you know many many psychoanalysts that are more relational are talking about the analyst contains the analysis and I, I'm not sure what that means. I, I, <laughs> I've asked yes, but okay. I'm providing a more linguistic interpretation that moves away from the containment metaphor that we see in Bick and and Dion and other Kleinian psychoanalysts. And instead of thinking about containment in relational terms, uh, I think about it first as describing the capacity of language to produce concepts, mm -hmm. which are containers of meaning, right. right? They are little containers of meaning. So in order for our world to be composed of objects that are meaningful, little containers of meaning, we are dependent on the working of the dermic drive in establishing a function of containment. So a containers of meaning. And the second way I look at it is the psychic capacity to contain the incessant sliding of the signifier under the chain of signifiers. So I mean, it is a way to hold, right? To, right. to make a stop, to make a punctuation, to contain this language, which naturally, well, I mean, psychotic subjects that speak in this way, they, they are actually, they have access to a, a very rudimentary function of language. The fact that it is a constant flow, right. that is very true. Right. It's very true. So what I argue is that the dermic drive operates in containing this incessant flow. Mm -hmm. It creates gaps. It creates pauses. And I'll end with, with this. You know that Lacan has this well-known aphorism. The signifier represents the subject to another signifier. This is how he, he says. Basically, this means that the subject, the subject of the unconscious maybe even, only if we might even say exists or like flickers for certain moments in speech, not in the utterance of the signifier itself or in the signification, but between signifiers, mm -hmm. in the gap between them. This is where we might speak of subjectivity in the gap. And the gap is exactly the product of punctuation. And this is why I think the dermic drive is such an important concept to develop. And hopefully we'll see that happening. Let's see. This is wonderful, uh, and it's very helpful. As I mentioned earlier, it it continues a trajectory that perhaps was already sort of inchoate and, and swirling around when you had to make your cuts to 
to contain your book, right? From being a thousand pages. So I would suggest here, Leon, want to give you, first of all, obviously want to thank you for coming on, but do want to give you space to perhaps maybe one or two of the things, because I'm assuming you're working on a lot. You've already mentioned that this hopefully will coalesce into a book. So besides that, is there, is there perhaps anything else you want to, you want to tell us that's either connected or perhaps even something new that you've been working on or working on something just to, to give us an idea of, of what we can perhaps glimpse in the future from you? So what's coming up? So yeah, I'm, I can tell you that I'm working on a book that hopefully will come out end of this year, beginning next year Excellent. on the subject of love. Oh, so okay. Uh, for all of you romantics out there. <laughs> and it's a book that uh, concentrates on Badiou's thesis of love and in relation to uh, Lacan's. That could be interesting. Let's see. And there's another project that I'm working on that hopefully soon we'll see some products about empathy and particularly against empathy. Yeah. And against empathy within the scope of, uh, of autism research. And, you know, autism is many times defined as a deficit of empathy. And uh, in this project, I try to really go against this and try and uh, redefine empathy in general. And, excellent, yeah. excellent, excellent. You mentioned that uh, sort of in the middle of our conversation, you, you sort of mentioned uh, you were overseeing some clinical work and one of the patients left because of sort of being forced right. into, into, so, so I assume that this is part of, of your stance about this and rethinking em empathy then. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. 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 That makes a lot of sense to me. I'm, I'm glad you actually dropped that aside, that breadcrumb earlier. <laughs> That's wonderful. And again, We'll remind the listeners, we've got two full episodes with Leon from before. Be sure to check those out. If I'll post those in the, uh, yeah, in the we'll show them. links, notes, etc. And I'm excited to see both books, especially the uh, the one on love. I mean, that's that's going to be interesting because, you know, we haven't seen any of that work from you yet in terms of, mm -hmm. you know, we've, we've kind of kept a, a focus on on some of your other work. So that'll be something new and exciting. But the mm -hmm. the, the work against empathy or re redefining it or resituating it, you're already getting getting me me thinking. And so I, I appreciate that and definitely want to want to see that as that comes to fruition. Hopefully very soon. We'll see about that. Excellent. Well, Leon, thank you so much again for technically the third time coming on the <laughs> show. And I just appreciate your, your, your patience and your time and your generosity and obviously your, your hard work uh, because I feel like I, I learn a lot from you uh, when, when you come and talk to us and when, when I read you. So it's that alone I'm thankful for. So uh, I really appreciate you. Thank you very much. And I mean, why would one do these things um, <laughs> other than to inspire the curiosity, the desire for knowledge? Hmm? Yeah. So uh... We may have to arrange for you to, to make a return fairly soon because I'm really interested in the talk you gave the other day regarding the melancholy and creativity. That's something that I think would be very fun and interesting to discuss with you just for the reasons I mentioned earlier. So we'll have to be in touch. We'll figure out something because I'd love to hear about that as well. Absolutely. I'd, I'd love to do that. Let's arrange it. Absolutely. Well, Leon, uh, we'll let you get back to it. Uh, enjoy your weekend. I hope it's, uh, I, I hope you have something planned, something that you can unwind from, <laughs> right? from having yeah. to deal with us, but uh, <laughs> we'll let you go. We're going to stay on just for a moment to talk about what's uh, coming up next week. But uh, again, 
thank you and, and enjoy your weekend. Okay, thanks a lot and see you soon. Once again, thanks to Leon Brenner for joining Taylor and I on this week's edition of the Machine and Unconscious the Happy Hour. Including the ultimate form of security, which is This is the typical violence of information. It's violent because what happens there is a murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. Thank you.